out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field, only today. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone, it's a great pleasure to introduce you to my friend Nick. Nick is one of my favorite people in the whole world to listen to. He is a rabbit hole of information, facts, knowledge, quirks, trivia and authenticity and I love him for it. I want to and can say a lot more about him, but this is a long episode, so I shall allow our chat to do its thing. If you want to contact Nick as a photographer, find him on his website, which is www.nickoldridge.net. That is A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E dot net. On Instagram at Photo Traveler. For coaching, track him down on Instagram as Outlier Insight. Or email him at nick at nickaldridge.co.za. This podcast is supported by Orangutans in the Field, the podcast where Marva and I talk about life stuff, how it impacts our mental health, and how we deal with it. Catch this unedited, raw, sometimes heart-eating, and always blatantly honest podcast on Anchor FM and Iono FM. Please also look out for information on my book, Life and None, a 12-step guide to life. You can find it by following the link from the right of my homepage, that is at www.freddy.org.za. It costs 300 rand without postage. Order from in my shop at www.freddyshop.co.za. Freddy is always spelled with an I-E at the end. This is Nick's story. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Mr. Nick Aldridge, welcome to Meet Me in the Field. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Awesome. Thank you very much. Oh, I can take my glasses off. I don't have to see you that closely. And I'm already asking my listeners to excuse the squeaky chair that I'm sitting on, but I'm not going to change it. It is what it is. Thank you so much for being here. I am extremely excited and slightly nervous. And <laughs> excitement because, you know, we spent an hour just chatting again. And just again, your mind fascinates me. <laughs> You, you just have the most amazing head on you, which I, you, I, I find so exciting to engage with. And I'm slightly nervous because I don't know where I'm going to, where we're going to end. And I don't have questions. Do you know where we're going to start? I don't know where I, we're going to start. I actually start. don't know that as well. <laughs> actually, I do have one question. Yeah. And, 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 and let, let, let's start there and see where it goes. So, and this is a kind of self-indulgent question because I don't think I understand it. Okay. And that is that you are Jewish. Yeah. Do you, do you call yourself Jewish because you are, you believe in, the, in, in, in Jew, Judaism as a faith? This is such a can of worms. I actually was like in the shower <laughs> rehearsing. <laughs> How I was gonna, how I was gonna respond to my complex uh, dysfunctional relationship with Judaism. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah. so, can we put a full stop there and and, and, and let's just let's just start quickly? That I want to go there, but so 
You were born to Jewish parents. No, my mother's Jewish. My father's not. Okay, I thought your father was the Jewish. No, so if you if you uh, Jews claim uh, Jews claim children born to a Jewish woman. Okay. So if you think about a nomadic tribe, if a woman gets pregnant, that child is then born to the tribe while okay. they're on the move, and presumably that's how you that child will then be raised Jewish. Okay. Which is interesting because Islam doesn't work like that. Okay. Islam, the father claims the child. Yeah, yeah. I don't know so. it works in our church. So. I've got no idea. Um, so, so did you attend like in Jewish schools and things? Did, did no. you grow up in the Jewish religion? So I, my, I was circumcised. Yeah. Um, my grandparents, my mother's parents, were Jewish, but they were reformers, and they were quite. Um, my grandmother was always involved with the synagogue. She was involved with the sisterhood, which is the charity wing, the, the women's charity branch, right until she was in her 90s. My grandfather helped found the Bloemfontein when they moved from Joburg to Bloem. They didn't have a Torah, you know, the, uh, the prayer scrolls. Okay. So my grandfather, my grandmother carried till like the day she died, a photograph of my grandfather and the rabbi went to a place called Zastron, yeah. somewhere Zastron, in, yeah. yeah, somewhere in the Free State, where the synagogue was closing down to pick up the Torah, because my grandfather in this little aeroplane, my grandfather flew the aeroplane. Oh my word! So, so she so always, Zastron had a, a synagogue. synagogue, yeah. Why? So who That'd knows? Be interesting who knows? To know. um, I was going to say God knows, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but so anyway, so so they were they were Jewish. My father's parents were Methodists. His father was very uh, mathematical, very analytical, and they were kind of nominally Methodist. I mean, Methodism to me is more of a financial structure in the way I understand it than a than a church. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I stand to be corrected. And uh, but my father was a, entitled yeah, to a personal yeah. opinion. No, but my father was an was a what like a I, I want to say a rabid atheist. Okay. He was a rabid Dawkins style atheist, okay. which has softened now in his seventies. But it was a very fraught childhood for me because I was very spiritual from when I was very young, but it didn't have any framework for okay. it. Okay. So family was my mother's family. My mother didn't get on with my father's family, um, who were English and Scottish descent. My father didn't get on with his father, although they worked together for most of their lives. And my father's my father was an atheist studying Islam to write a book when I was a child. I went to a Christian school. Um, I went to a Catholic nursery school. <laughs> I considered myself Jewish. I didn't want to be in the nativity play because they, uh, it was about Jesus. So, I mean, I was about four and I was like, I can't be in the, the play about Jesus because I'm Jewish. And then they went, no, but you can be a shepherd. The shepherds were Jewish. It's okay. You know? <laughs> um, so it was always an issue for me. It was always oh, wow. an identity issue. And then in primary school, my, I, my primary school headmaster was really from the like, like Afrikaner nationalist sort of fascist bent. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we were in Seapoint, but he was an ex-prison warden. He was very militaristic. And it was like, my mother hated him and I got caught between the crossfire of my mother's anarchy and what I now know is 
probably undiagnosed ADHD. Okay. And his uh, militant sort of uh, uh, regimented way of doing things. But we were also politically quite left-wing ah. in a white neighborhood. So most of the people around me weren't so politically oriented as I was in my home. And so it was that this Christianity at the school was basically underpinning apartheid, which was quite obvious from when I was really young. Yeah. My father was working with with Muslims. You know, we were hiding the domestic worker when they came around looking for passports oh and stuff like that. So it was like the Christians aren't practicing what they preach. Yeah. The Jews who've just come out of the Holocaust are supporting or enabling or profiting in some way, emotionally, physically, financially, from the structure of the state and are prepared to defend it over a dinner party conversation. Yeah. And the my father's atheism robs me of a piece of myself, which I can articulate now, but I most of my life wasn't able to articulate. Yeah. And it's kind of, thank God, for Star Wars and Jedis. <laughs> but no, because they were Jedis. And the Jedis believed in the Force. And the Force was something that was different yeah. to... It was different to all of the stuff and it was pure. And that really triggered my interest in Buddhism very, very early okay. on. What's interesting is, is that, you know, we had religious classes at school. So we, I would go to the Jewish religious classes and I was really interested in... The Bi- I've always been fascinated by the Bible and religious studies and, and my heritage because it was so mishmashed, yeah. but particularly my Jewish heritage because it kind of marked me as special in some way. So I remember years ago being in Israel and talking to a guy in a record store. We were listening to um, Arabic oud music. <laughs> and we're sitting there listening to this oud music and, and I was saying like, what's it like to be a Jew in a country full of other Jews? And yeah. he was like, well, it's just what it is. I was like, oh, because for me, my Judaism was always something that marked me as separate. Yeah. You know, so I was always separate. And it might have, now if I think about it, it might have been something to do with claiming a kind of victim status so that I could be on the right side of history in the political landscape of apartheid South Africa is like, oh, well, I'm an outsider too, Yeah, you know, and that's really informed most of the rest of my life is going, I'm an outsider, but I can't be an ANC member because I'm not that, I, I'm an, I'm a perpetual, I can't pick the other side. Yeah. I have to pick oh, wow. the outside, Yeah, you know, but sure. then at 13, my cousin had his bar mitzvah and I decided I was going to have a bar mitzvah. Okay. So I suddenly had to do a crash course in Hebrew uh, Bible studies, like how to be Jewish. Yeah. And I loved it. I was completely, completely obsessed. I had a Hebrew teacher. I had a Torah teacher, a Hebrew teacher. I went to Cheda. I did all the Jewish stuff and whatever. But through the process of the year of learning for my bar mitzvah, which I, again, did as an outsider and a freelancer. Mm. Um, <laughs> my mother got more and more involved in the shul and my mother, my parents' marriage, which was had been teetering for years, basically dissolved and fairly soon after my bar mitzvah, my, the cousin, who's the guy with the cancer, 
the man who sings in the shul, moved into our house. My father was out. Okay. So I was like, okay, fuck these Jews. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I tried. Yeah. You know what I mean? I gave you guys, like, I gave this everything I had and what I lost was family. Yeah. You know, and, and so what's underpinned most of my life is a real struggle to decide which side. Wow. Which side am I on and, and where do I stand and how do I... If I'm separate, how am I separate and still on the side of the good? Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, which led me to being a photojournalist, which has led me to a lot of the work that I've always done is being kind of an observer, an outsider, third okay. party. Through yeah. a lens to, 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 to put that additional distance. Be- so that I could be distant. And, yeah. and also that I didn't have to pick sides mm. because... Like, you know, you're who wants observer. to choose between their mother and their father? Yeah. However dysfunctional they were. They were both fucking lunatics. And their, 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 their marriage was, a, was a, an utter shit show. Yeah. But, like, when you're a kid, like, who wants to go, like, oh, well, I'll pick my mom. You know, well, I'll pick my dad, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's brutal. Absolutely. You know? Um, so. Amazing. What's the word I'm looking for? Um. Um, an appropriate entrance <laughs> yeah. to, to, to do this podcast. Did you study journalism? I studied, so I studied my, my father um, insisted that I do graphic design, not okay. fine art. So I did two years of graphic design. I absolutely hated it. And that's not after matric? After matric, So you yeah. were interested in art? I was interested in art and I just, I kind of chose art because it was easy and it was kind of what I was leaning towards and it meant I didn't have to think about it and I didn't have to go to the army. Because okay. I, there was, I, I had a huge moral obligation, uh, 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 objection to going to the army. But I was never going to be a conscientious objector because I wasn't fucking conscientious. Okay. You know what I mean? I was just going to be a weasel. I was just going to sneak out. I was going to sneak through the cracks. Oh, you wow. You were born in what? 1771? 17, 17. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we're three years apart. Okay. okay. Cool. You must be younger than me. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, did did you eventually get called up? And did you? So did, I did. Did you called up? Or did got, you actually miss it? I got called up, but I didn't go. And I did two years. I basically was registered for graphic design for two years. I did one year. I got thrown out halfway through the second year, but I stayed. Rewrote some matric subjects so that I could get into university and um, used their darkrooms and printmaking facilities kind of on the QT and luckily was able to sit in on Hardy Boerter's uh, screen printing workshops that he was teaching the third years because okay. I just was a, became a freelance student. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I just made my own curriculum. And then I got to fine arts and I absolutely hated that as well. I hated Michaelis as well. Um, so I ended up doing a very long English degree. Oh, wow. But I was lucky enough to do, you know, I did religious studies. I studied archaeology. Um, I did very well in English. And I, I think one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't go back and do the honors that I was sort of planning to do. Okay. Um, at UCT? At UCT, okay. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I did... I, you know, I did religious studies because I was com- like obsessed with yeah. religion and Eastern philosophy and stuff like that. How did your father get involved in the whole Muslim vibe that 
I don't know what I don't know what initially led to it, but I mean, the, my grandfather's business was right on the edge of Burkamp. Okay. So I think he was exposed to a lot of Muslim yeah. people, and I think you know, as a as an autodidact, he. I think he gravitated to other people who had a similar similar bent okay. to him. And I think that, you know, Muslims being a kind of an underclass with this deep, rich vein of academia yeah. and study and spiritual depth and history and unwritten sort of secret history as well mm. in apartheid was a was a very strong pull for him. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, I think, how okay. he how he ended up there. But I mean, you can imagine that Friday night dinners were mm. particularly fraught when my father would arrive holding a Quran at Friday night dinner, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So unlike me, you grew up very politically aware. Yes, we we. I grew up in a house that 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 wasn't like that at all. Yeah. <sighs> I didn't even know who Nelson Mandela was when I yeah. when I when I went to the army. I, I think that's where I became aware of, of who well, actually was. I grew up in a house where I could see Robben Island. Yeah, I could literally okay, see Robben right, Island. Yeah. We knew that the leaders of the yeah. ANC were sitting there. You know, so we had a completely different a... viewpoint. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. and and what happened for you after varsity? Is that when you started doing photojournalism? So after university, I went to South America with a friend on a whim. We weren't even particularly good friends. Um, and we ended up sort of hoboing, backpacking, trust funding around uh, some combination of those around <laughs> South America um, for a couple of awesome. months. Yeah, for a couple of months. It was amazing. I mean, it was a huge opening for me. And I came back sort of two months late to start my honours degree. So I got roped into, I did a short course in, in journalism um, because after I dropped out of art school, I was like, I don't want to do visual arts anymore. Uh, I did a short course in journalism and then I was working, delivering pizzas, editing very, very bad novels, um, <laughs> trying to write probably an even worse novel um, and delivering pizzas and getting stoned oh, and living in observatory. And sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I did that for a little too long though. Um, and um, yeah, I um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I can just imagine eating half the pizzas that you were supposed to deliver because you had the munchies. <laughs> oh, no, that was, that was, all, that was all part of it. I love delivering pizzas because I, I was basically earning money, but I could be on my own and I could be in my car and I could listen to. Could listen to jazz, or I could, you know what I mean. I could okay, yeah. soundtrack, and I could, I could uh, have these quick, funny, witty interactions with people. Yeah. And I would, I would make up games for myself. It was like, how many houses can I get inside the kitchen? Okay, you yeah. know what I mean. Because I didn't want to do the transaction in the doorway. I wanted to have access to mm. people's lives. I wanted to. I wanted to observe that will fascinate how, me as well. Yeah, so yeah, I would, kind of I would make it a people's private space and seeing a little bit of, 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 yeah. of what, what this is about. Yeah, that will fascinate me as well. So fascinating to, just to be inside mm. people's houses and then like you know you you have the same kind of customers and you kind of go like, 
she's wearing, it's eight o'clock at night, why is she wearing dark glasses? Yeah. Like, did he hit her? <laughs> you know, you start yes. to play these stories in your head, uh, you know, these patterns, and this person tips particularly well on certain days and doesn't on others, what's going on there? Like, oh, wow. what are the, all these weird social dynamics yeah. and all these closed in, environments that you can't get inside, you yeah. know, these like, your kitchen is a kind of inner sanctum. Absolutely. You know, yeah. that, that's quite unguarded. Mm. You, you know what I mean? Like I wake up in the morning and I make the bed. If someone comes to my house, they walk past my bedroom, they see the bed's made. Yeah. But the kitchen is a di- You know yes. what I mean? You walk into my kitchen, it's like, it's a lot more, in a way, it's a lot more revealing. I like you know? that, yeah. So, and then a friend was working, his a friend's girlfriend was working at Diboga. Um and they needed somebody to do a couple of freelance shifts. And I was like, well, what does it entail? And they said, well, they'll give you a camera and a car and you drive around and you take some pictures. And they paid me a hundred rand a day. Wow. And I was like, well, this is the same as um, delivering pizzas. Yeah. Um, except I've got a camera. And then by the end of the week, I'd done a page three story. Oh, wow. And they asked me to stay a little bit longer. And by the end of the month, I'd met Nelson Mandela. Oh, wow. I was very early for, I did a night, my first night shift, I went to Parliament, I was early. Nelson Mandela was honouring Bayer's Nordia. Yeah. Um, and I was the first person in the room. So when I arrived, Mandela arrived next. And there was no security in those days. I didn't have a tie on. I was just like a, you know, at the Boca, we had to wear this horrible polyester tie. We had one a tie, a shirt and tie in the cupboard. But if anyone went to Parliament, yes, because it was an old National Party thing. I was like, there's no fucking ways I'm putting that disgusting <laughs> shit on. Like, I'm a fucking Jewish bloke. I'm seaport. You can keep that shit, you know? Um, and so I showed up, and there was no security in Parliament. And Nelson Mandela was the first person who walked in the room, and he went, hi, I'm Nelson. And I was like, I- I'm Nick. <laughs> you know? um, and then Bayer's Nodea walked in. You know? Oh, my word. Yeah, so it was like, like me standing there with the, three, with the three of us just kind of, Shooting the breeze. Yeah, well, hardly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and then we went. We, we no, but this is a key, a salient piece of information. Ah. So I didn't really know anything about photography. <laughs> I mean, I could use a camera, and I had yeah. a dark room, and I'd taken lots of pictures. But I'm sitting on the floor beneath Mandela sitting at the table, and I'm sitting on the floor. And there's another photojournalist, much more experienced and older than me, Benny Gould, is sitting next to me. And he says to me, like, hey, bro, give me your 50 mil lens. So I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. So I give it to him because I'm shooting with some other lens. And then he goes, you know, you're not allowed to use a flash in here. So I'm like, oh, shit, what do I do? So I said to him, will you teach me how to do this? But now he's sitting at Mandela's feet. I'm like, like, a, like a meter away from Mandela. And I'm asking <laughs> my competition, how do I do this? And he goes, I'm like, how do you take pictures without this light? He goes, you use the 50 mil lens. And then I realized I've just given it to him. <laughs> oh, my word. That's how I learned photography. Oh, my word. I have a photo of, of Nelson Mandela and the Queen walking yeah. down that, 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 that path from, from Parliament House down to this, I think it was called the Senate at that stage. Mm. Yeah, because I was working in Parliament at that stage and I was there. So I've got a perfect picture oh, of, of them walking, walking, walking down that road. Yeah. yeah. So... And that's how your, 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 your interest in photography starts. So, look, I got a camera for my bar mitzvah. Okay. So I've always been interested in photography, but it was always... Um, it was, I, it, I wasn't one of those people who, like, 
got a camera and started shooting immediately. I really started shooting, even though I studied photography at both tech and, so technically I knew what I was doing and I could print and I could process and I could do all of that stuff. I actually had no real interest in that. Oh, wow. um, I'm not a very um, process, I wasn't a very process oriented photographer. Some photographers love all the chemicals and shit. What I realized was I loved shooting. I okay. loved being out, I loved shooting, I loved how beautiful the actual world was. Because basically, I was super curious. Okay. And I wanted to travel. I thought that I would, after Brazil, I would come back. I'd publish some travel articles, which I published, I think, one. And then I would be on a, you know, I'd be Hemingway, like, jetting around the world <laughs> with my little shoulder bag, my little satchel with my moleskin notebook and writing pithy comments about third world places, you know. And that never really happened. But... And it probably didn't happen because I got the job at Diboga. Okay. Because working, being a Jewish boy from Seapoint who hardly spoke Afrikaans, going to the northern <laughs> suburbs was like going to a different country. <laughs> Can you imagine? And I would go to the townships. And I had like kind of permission yeah. to go to the townships. And we didn't have cell phones in those days. So I'd get a job. It was like, you've got to go to Kailicha police station, do some. I'd go, I'd go the whole day, I'd drive around Kailicha, I'd take pictures, I'd do all sorts, just explore, mm. I'd stop, I'd speak to people. Yeah. I did the same in the northern suburbs, I did the same, I just, I just explored. Yeah. My job was to be curious, it was Amazing. wonderful. Wow, that suited you perfectly. Yeah. What, what years are we talking about now? So that was in the no. early, in the mid-90s. Okay, so, so that's I wasn't, after all the riots and, so, and, and after the elections. In my Yeah, so after the elections, my first, my first couple of big protest marches. My first blood was a Kusatu march through the city of Cape Town and I got, a, a policeman was about to punch a drunk a rioter or someone, you know, around the periphery of the marches. There yeah. were always sort of drunk people and anarchists and just, you know, and there, there'd been some sort of scuffle and this, the policeman had this drunk guy and I had a wide angle lens on um, which means you've got to be much closer than you think to that okay. action. And I leaned in behind him as he was going to punch this guy. It was this wonderful action shot that yeah. I have pre-visualized in my head. But, of course, as he wound up his arm to punch this guy in the face, he hit me first <laughs> and bust my eye open. And it was like, you know, like, so, oh, no. so I think I actually got the picture. I do think I got the picture, but I mean, I did kind of come away bleeding and slightly oh, concussed. <laughs> so, um, I was quite proud of myself. <laughs> Amazing story. Yeah. What was the most hectic thing you shot? So the most hectic thing I ever did was Pagad. Um, oh, that's Pugard, the late 90s. Yeah, so Pagad really blew, shattered my world. Working with Pagad really shattered my world in so many ways oh, because wow. it my office was a whole bunch of Afrikaans people and a whole bunch of Muslim people who called each other Mabru and the Afrikaners called each other Mabru and everybody called me cousin or Soti and I sat between them. Oh my word. Um, and I obviously had a strong allegiance to the Muslims um, because of my outsider status, but also because of my father exactly, taking yeah. me along to these rituals and weird Obviously, things yeah. that we've done as a oh, child. Wow. Um, 
so I didn't look like them and I didn't belong to them, but I had a stronger allegiance to them than I did to the Afrikaan, the Afrikaners in the yeah. office, although, you know, I look more like them. Um, and, but what Pagat did was Pagat were the first people, I think in South Africa, to really treat the media as an enemy. So up until that point, the police didn't even treat the, didn't treat the media as an enemy and the struggle, the, you know, the forces of the struggle of populism didn't treat the media as an enemy because they saw it as a, as a tool and, you know, as a tool for, yeah. well, certainly my experience was I had very little um, resistance. I mean, I had a couple of scuffles with the police and I got beaten up actually by the police a couple of times, but, but <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, but it wasn't really the, the, um, it wasn't their policy to undermine you. What Paga yeah. did was they went, if you're not one of us, you are our enemy. Okay. And that made it very dangerous. It made it started to tear us apart because my oh, wow. my allies in my office were Muslim photographers yeah. um, and ex-struggle photographers, and they were mentoring me. And all of a sudden, we were being torn yeah. apart. Can I just quickly put that into into perspective? Because now we're talking about the new South Africa. So so media freedom is now something new. So yeah, media freedom. We, we had very selective um, yes. media. I mean, I was brainwashed. Yes, but I mean, the thing is, like, I remember in the 80s reading the, like, struggling through the Freya Wehrblatt. Okay. Struggling through the Freya Wehrblatt. Okay. Struggling through, no, like, reading the, the, um, the weekly mail. Okay. You know, like, it, it, the information was there. You just weren't exposed to it yeah. where you lived or Absolutely. inside your yeah. your culture. And I remember sitting on Clifton Beach with my sort of broken home friends um, in my teens and reading about the state of emergency. You okay, know that yeah. we're we're all hooligans trying to pick up chicks and and. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like fronting and beating each other up and behaving like dumbass teenagers. Yeah. But I had a copy of the Weekly Mail okay. in my bag. You, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So there was always that element. I get that picture. You know, um, really, really interesting. Um, because also for the listeners who don't know the younger people, Pagat stands for people against gangsterism and drugs. Yeah. yeah. And, and, that, so, and so what was interesting about that was the first few meetings that I went to, there were people I knew. Okay. There were older Muslim men that I knew, that I knew through my father, yeah. who were, had a very, they were good people. Yeah. And they had very good reasons for wanting to get rid of gangsterism and drugs yeah. in their neighborhoods. And, and it, it, it's a political thing that I, I don't know if my version of the history is necessarily the official version. And I don't think there's a lot of, of I think there's a yeah. numerous official versions. Well, it's interesting because you look at it from your perspective. Mm. I look at it from, from the bombings mm. that, 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 that so, yeah. in, in, in Cape Town at those at So at my those sister's stages. best friend, her sister, was um, lost a leg. In one, of, in one of the bombings in Camps Bay. Oh, wow. So it was very close to us in yeah. all sorts of ways. And then I sort of threw myself into this thing, but quite abstract from that. Yeah. Um, and what, what was really interesting about working for, for Libogo was 
the idea of, there were two things that really came up for me that were hugely problematic being a photojournalist. The one was the idea of the invisible observer. Yeah. Because I am wildly opinionated. I'm six foot four. <laughs> I'm blonde. I'm loud. And I don't have a filter. Yeah. So it was very hard to be an invisible observer mm. in the townships. It was very hard to be <laughs> yeah. an, an invisible observer with Afrikaners making racist comments. Mm. You know, yeah. it was very hard to be in a lot of those situations. It was very hard for me to go, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't have a stance with this. Yeah. Because I the was calling was a people, very, very conservative newspaper. Very conservative. Extremely conservative. It was the, it literally was the, in, the, it was the white voice. I was like literally the, the white heart of the beast. Yeah. Wow. And what was also interesting was even in that very first Kusatu rally, the pictures that I came back with that I thought were valid, that told the valid story of what had happened were not the pictures that they chose. Okay. What they chose was Swat Kafar, the yeah. danger of black of course, people, yeah. the danger of communism, that, mm. that oh, narrative. Wow. And it was like, oh, so the narrative, I've got no power to create the narrative, mm. even though I'm there. Yeah. And the, there are market forces that dictate the narrative. And then with Pagad, it was like, oh, there are these, when Pagat got kind of taken over by this much more militant, much more fundamentalist leaning element, and it was like, you're either with us or you're our enemy. It was like, well, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Because the cause of getting rid of gangsterism and drugs is perfectly valid. You've lost your direction. Mm. Because what happened at the end of apartheid was that, this is my understanding of it, was that the police informant networks into the townships and into the colored neighborhoods was set up through the drug dealers because they were supplying or facilitating drugs to get into yes. all these areas to destabilize any resistance to apartheid. Yeah. When the new government took over, the police networks just stayed the same. Mm. So there were all these people who'd fought, and were particularly Muslim people, um, who'd fought and supported the new ANC government, yeah. but they were still subject to this completely rotten informant mm. network yeah. that had been Amazing. facilitated and set up by apartheid to undermine them yeah. and was then being used against them by their new government that they'd elected. Yeah. Oh, so it was wow. a really yeah. fucking, you can imagine yeah. how, how hideously twisted it felt for them inside yeah. that. And then to kind of be in this position of like, oh, well, I'm this abstract righteous observer here looking at this and going like, no, you're not, buddy. You work for the state. And not only do you work for the state, you work for the old apartheid yeah. interests in this country. And it's like, it was such a brutal awakening for me to how much of a small cog I was in a yeah. very big machine that I'm really only pulling it apart now because what it did was it just drove me underground and went I don't want to participate at all yeah. I don't actually want to participate because there's no way that I can affect change from the position that mm. I'm in you know that makes sense well, the flip side was that I realized very quickly with portrait photography because it was one-on-one, -on -one, I could be present. And what I realized 
when I was doing portrait photography was it's not a portrait of you. It's a portrait of, it's a captured record of our interaction. And that's kind of led me through photography into a lot of the deeper work that I've done over the last few years was going, oh, that the photograph is just, is a very external thing. It's a very external thing. And I've over and over again tried to bring internal elements to it. Yes. But essentially it's a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional version of the world, which, and a three-dimensional version of the world fundamentally denies a kind of soul. Ah, awesome. That's really interesting. Take us to, and I know we're hopping forward, but we, we don't have that much time left. I try to keep. I don't really want to talk about. I don't really want to talk about photography that much. Okay, cool. Anyway, honest. so we're now going to go to the inner work. What, yeah. What triggered your inner work? Because you are possibly, and that's that's why I, I have you sitting here because mm. I'm fascinated by the inner work that you've done, and you have such amazing insight in yourself and in everything around you. You have such a fascinating way of looking at the world and interpreting what's happened. So what triggered your inner journey for you? And, and, and what was the first thing you did? Um, so, can you remember what, what was the first thing you did on an inner journey? So I, after I got beat up by Pagad and started getting death threats, I decided oh. to go to London. And I was at the cusp of that two-year working holiday yes. visa. So I knew that if I, needed, if I wanted to go, I needed to go fairly soon. My, uh, my girlfriend at the time had a British passport. I, we were taking a lot of drugs at the time. Okay. Um, or a lot for me. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day. He said he took 700 ecstasy tablets over seven years, 100 a year. Um, um, but it's not so, that much. It's two, two each weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, um, so I, yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't do, I didn't take that much drugs, yeah. but the drugs really affected me. And, and the problem with, the, with taking drugs during that time was I was dealing with Pagad and I was dealing with that, the guy who was decapitating prostitutes, oh. streetwalker prostitutes and seeing the bodies on the side of the road in the bushes on a Friday afternoon and then going and taking two ecstasy tablets Ooh. and going jawling with a whole bunch of people who were all falling in love with one another. Yeah all this beautiful flipping oxytocin, dopamine, mm-hmm. serotonin, party, party, yeah. party. And it was just making me, there was so much I wanted, but there was, I couldn't connect yeah. because I was basically traumatizing yes. myself and then medicating to the trauma and then traumatizing and medicating the trauma and getting more and more alienated mm-hmm. from this happy, lovey, rave yeah, culture that was going on. And... So I photographed it all because it was a place I could hide. I could okay. participate without engaging okay. in some way. And um, I also, yeah, so that we ended up in London and... I have to ask a question. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you there. Was there a difference that you could see? Could you, could you see a difference in the photos you took of those events when you were on ecstasy? Well, I, was, I only ever took them when I was on ecstasy. So I... I think I think I was technically very good. Okay. I think I was technically. I also shot a lot. I shot like the way people shoot with digital cameras. Okay. I just shot constantly. Okay. And I treated film cameras, and that's why I learned so quickly. And why and I, yeah, I learned quickly because I just used a lot of film. Okay. 
and you can learn very quickly now because you don't doesn't cost you anything to just shoot yes, and shoot and shoot absolutely. and shoot. Anyway, I end up in London and I'm working in studios, but I'm got like now I've got serious fucking PTSD. My grandfather, who I absolutely adored, had died. Uh, I remember being kicked in the head by Pagad outside the Rowan Street police station. And Phew. all I was thinking was Brian Uranofsky was standing over me with a TV camera, TV uh, camera recording. And I was just like, I just don't want my grandfather to sit because I knew he was in hospital. He'd had a heart oh, attack. Shame. I was like, I don't want him to see me. Oh. I, so I was literally covering my face more. Not all I could me. think about was that this will push my grandfather over yeah. the edge. Oh, wow. I'm getting like choked up. Mm. Um, and I spoke to Benny Gould again. I, sp- I actually called the, the, I called the Pagad guys and I was like, you've got to call off your dogs. They're threatening to kill me. I'm nobody. Why? You know, and they were like, there's nothing we can do. It's too late. Wow. So I called Benny and he was like, dude, you've got to get out of the country. Um, so I left. Um, and I got to London and I was a wreck. And I got menial jobs and I got a couple of nice freelance jobs, but I worked in a studio and I learned a lot. I learned a hell of a lot there. Um, working in photographic studios, working, you know, being the junior, 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 junior in studios where the best photographers in the world were working. Awesome. So you can learn a lot, yeah. as my dad always says, steal with your eyes. Um, but I was a wreck um, and I was groundless and rootless and I was taking more and more drugs and shittier and shittier drugs and eventually just cracked and got on a plane and I literally got to Israel. I was still high and I okay. went to Israel because I couldn't go back to South Africa. I just couldn't bring myself to come back to South Africa. I couldn't get to the States to my sister's wedding because they wouldn't give me a visa from London because I didn't have a job. Wow. And... Israel would take me with no money and no prospects and whatever, you know. Um, and I bought a book on meditation okay. when I was in London because I'd always been interested in Buddhism, but I'd never really gone down that road. So I came back here, did menial jobs, started working as a photographer, and but was taking a lot of drugs once I got back to South Africa. How long were you in Israel for? I was there for, I was only there for six or eight months. I was okay. in London for six months and Israel for six months. Maybe. Okay. Um, but my girlfriend and I split up. I, I was like basically homeless, just miserable, a wreck. Um, not taking drugs, not doing anything, just trying to keep clean, but depressed and isolated and sad and just a wreck. Mm. Um, and suffering from PTSD. Well, I didn't even know what it was yeah. at the time. So I came back here and I worked in the fashion business holding reflectors and driving vans. <laughs> and in summer, and then taking pictures for a little magazine that a friend of mine had started. And then hooked up with a girl who was a bit of an acid head and just started doing a lot of psychedelics, which I loved because it was really a way to get close to God. Okay. You know what I mean? To just get close. So for you, that was, a, that was a spiritual experience. It was the, such the, the a deep psychedelic. spiritual experience, okay. but I was doing it in the worst context over and over again. In a relationship I didn't, that I wasn't in love with her. I mean, she was my best friend, but I wasn't in love with her. With at trance parties, with people I didn't like or trust. I yeah. was paranoid. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was obliterate myself. Yeah. And then I was coming home from a party... Um, one morning at five o'clock in the morning and was involved in a head-on collision with an oncoming bucky. I think, oh the, I think the driver was um, was asleep at 
the wheel or drug, I don't know. Um, I was, my body was smashed to pieces. Um, they put in a chest drain fairly quickly so that I didn't sort of, uh, my lungs didn't collapse. Um, but I took a month of traction well, in hospital and then probably six to eight months of learning to walk again. Finding my Finding my feet again. And that was the beginning of, I guess, exploring that there was something else. I always tell the story that my doctor, the orthopedic surgeon, um, my, every, my whole body healed, but my arm didn't heal because it was in a cast. And there was like a steering wheel sized gap in my, um, in my forearm, you know, where I basically blocked my face against the steering wheel. And because the you know, body's got a, like a triage system. So it, it healed my knees and it healed my hip and it healed my chest and it healed all the broken bits that were unprotected, but it didn't heal my arm because my arm was fundamentally safe in the cast. So I was going every two weeks, I was like hitchhiking into town, walking with a stick. I couldn't shave because of the way the cast was on my arm. So I had this big beard and, and like a walking, like an old, like a kind of wise man from the mountain stick. And I'd go into the hospital and we'd x-ray my arm and it just wasn't any better. Oh my God. And um, eventually I said to him, like, what do I do to heal it? And he went, well, you just got to send it healing thoughts with this completely deadpan face. So I went away and I came back two weeks later and I said to him, like, you can take the cast off. And he said to me, no, 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 we've got an x-ray. And I was like, no, it's healed. He says to me, what do you mean it's healed? I was like, it's healed. You can just take the cast off. So he said, no, no, we've got to x-ray it. So we go, we x-ray it, and it's, it's my arm's healed. Oh, my God. It's really? gone from like, <laughs> like virtually an oh inch of no bone to healed. And he goes, but like, how did that happen? And I was like, well, I just sent it healing thoughts. And he went, <laughs> did that work? <laughs> I was like, you told me what to do. And he was like, no. You followed my advice. You followed my... <laughs> I was like, you just, you told me to do that. He was like, I didn't know that was going to work. What am I going to say to you? You know what I mean? It's going to heal when it heals. Um, So, and I think that that was a real, it was a real turning point for me because it revealed something other. This, this atheism that I'd clung to throughout all my flirtations with Judaism, I'd never really believed in God. Um, that really opened something up. And then I started going to Tai Chi classes. Okay. And about my second or third Tai Chi class, my teacher's teacher had us do an exercise where somebody did a breathing, and the senior student did a breathing exercise, and we did a breathing exercise, sort of Qigong exercise. And we stood probably three meters away from them with our hands out. And I could feel this woman's energy field. But not only could I feel her energy field, I could push it and I could move her physically. And I could run my hand over it. And when I got to her left shoulder, I could feel that there was a dent. And I was like, have you got an injury in your left shoulder? It feels like a rotator injury. Yeah. And she said, yes. And she was blindfolded and I was three meters away from her. And good grief. I was a huge jazz fan. And I remember driving home from that class with, um, I think it was an Abdullah Ibrahim live in Berlin 
album. I can't remember what year it was. I want to say 57, but I think that's too early. But um, it was Abdullah Ibrahim live in Berlin, and he lays down a melody, and then he lays down another melody over it, or separate to it. And then he lays down another melody, and then he lays down another. And then he starts to merge these four layers of melodic structure over each other, and then they dance with each other. And I could feel this music moving in this dance with itself, but I could also feel that the whole world was dancing to the same music. And um, it was a hugely profound experience for me spiritually. It was like there is this, there is this force, which I now would call the Tao, what I would call the, that there's a life force and that yeah. there's a rhythm and that there's a dance and that underpins everything. And there's a, where I'm at at the moment right now, you know, 20 years after that, is, um, is in a place where I'm going, I'm really going, what's the smoothest, least resistant way to stay in that okay and i don't think i'm hugely successful but (laughs) i do that is my work at the moment and it's my work as a martial artist and i do aikido i've stopped doing kung fu because it got a little too violent for me and then had a detour for into yoga for years and years which was hugely profound yoga teacher as well yeah yeah so you teach yoga at all I don't. I teach an Aikido weapons and movement class on Saturday mornings okay. in a field. Why um, did I think you were a Qigong teacher as well? So I teach some Qigong. I did a Qigong course in lockdown, online Qigong okay. course, and it was hugely profound with a guy named Sifu Singh, Harinder Singh. Um, it was offered online for free. So my, I guess my, my personal... The deep personal work came after that. I ended up in a terrible marriage. I really was broken. I was, you know, after the car accident, I never really got any support emotionally. I healed physically. I didn't do any physio. I went to Qigong classes and then I started going to Kung Fu classes. Um, And I married the worst person for me. And we tortured each other for a very long time. And then we had a child together and we continued to torture each other for a very long time. And I like to think that we don't torture each other quite so much anymore. But she is, my ex-wife is my greatest spiritual teacher. She shows me over and over again where my resistance is. Okay. Where I'm stuck, where I'm not taking responsibility, where I'm blaming and I see it show up in my daughter's life, in my finances, in my mental state. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a devastating kind of twenty years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also hugely profound. The moment she mm. left, I did a tender vipassana. Oh well. Um, the day she left, the day she didn't come home, um, I'd photographed a yoga teacher the day before who was just starting a yoga school, and she said. If you'd feel like it, come to class tomorrow. And it was literally her first class. I showed up at her first class and it was I was happy for an hour. Oh, wow. um, and so I just kept going back because I was so unhappy and so angry and sure. drunk and, and 
distraught and had an eight-month-old baby and mm. was like, this wasn't my path. Yeah. What the fuck? Whose life is this? But for an hour a day, I could do yoga. You. Um, and then I ended up doing a yoga teacher's training with no intention of becoming a yoga teacher, but actually ended up doing it. Okay. And teaching was wonderful. I, I, lo I loved teaching. Awesome. Teaching was like a piece of me that was utterly unexpressed with photography. Um, and that kind of being able to take people to places that were new yeah. and that were rich and warm and sacred in some way was just a huge opening. But yoga for me wasn't necessarily my path. Okay. Um, and it's really... It's really been, since I've discovered Aikido and been doing Aikido now for, I think I worked it out, it started in 2015. So it's about six years. Okay. So I've been doing Aikido for about six years and that really is this incredible dance of relationships, resistance. The, it's got all the subtlety of Qigong, but with a constantly changing I want to say opponent, but they're not really opponent. They're just another person yeah. that you need to find the smooth way to move around them and prevent yourself from hurting them and mm. prevent them from hurting you and kind of joyously propose physical ideas to one another yeah. and then dance with them and release them. Oh, you know? um, and it looks like, uh, judo and it sometimes looks like the stuff that I teach sometimes looks like samurai sword fighting but really what it is is it's a dance of two people refining their own energetic alignment okay um, that on. sounds very abstract yeah. but it's but it's really it kind of taps into this idea that's been running in my head for a long time Osensei the founder of Aikido said Aikido which means the way of the harmonizing breath. Okay. So it's breath, harmony, and the way. Okay. So if you think about breath, um, you know, the, God creates the world with a word in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Our breath is the link between the outside and the inside. So if you think about, like, the outside of the world, your digestive tract and your lungs are essentially the outside you know your skin is on the outside and the skin in your mouth is the outside and the tube that goes into your lungs is the outside that's the outside of your body right so the gaseous exchange of breath into body is this inside outside movement okay. it's this constant interaction between trees breathe out i breathe in yeah. i breathe out trees How breathe long? in you know this complex gaseous exchange that's happening inside my body that changes all sorts of things. And what we now know is that it affects the sympathetic or the parasympathetic yeah. nervous system, you know, being like fight and fight and flight, fight, flight, freeze, mm. or um, rest and yeah. rest and digest, yeah. relax, relax, you know. And you know, now through like we were talking about it earlier, Andrew Huberman's work with the rapid other eye movement yes. stuff, this research he's done into that eye movement stuff, how our eyes are externalized parts of our brain that we can use to influence 
that system. Yeah. And our, but our breath is the one that we've known about for the mm. longest. The yogis, I mean, the whole of pranayama, the whole Absolutely. of every meditation tradition in the world from Russian Orthodox priests, Sistema, the Russian martial art, is all about breath. Okay. You know, martial oh, wow. arts is about breath. You, yeah. you breathe out so that when you punch, you breathe out and, you know, you lock down so that your abs are tight, so that you've got power. But in, if I respond to that by me breathing out my tight abs, you can hit me really hard. It's going to hurt. So I breathe in and I soften. So you get hard, I, I get soft. You get soft, I get hard. Yeah. And that's how we dance with the world. So a sensei says, Aikido happens, breath harmony way happens between heaven and earth. Which sounds like weird spiritual mumbo jumbo. But if you think about that as a vertical alignment, what are we as humans? We stand between heaven and earth. Okay. And then shit comes at us from various angles, but mostly on a kind of horizontal yeah. plane. And to be in harmony with our breath, we need to maintain our vertical alignment. So maintain vertical oh, yeah. alignment between heaven and earth. Yeah. And we can get super esoteric. It's like between mother and father, father sky, mother earth. Yeah. Align yourself between father sky, mother earth, the conscious principle and the generative principle. Yeah. And stand there like a tree, you know, grow strong roots, grow beautiful leaves yeah. and flowers and be that thing that stands between these two places. And that's where Aikido happens, yeah. which is this union of yin-yang. It's this constant, and it's never changing. Remember, you know, we go, oh, like yin yoga or, oh, that's very yang. It's so masculine. It's like. It never happens without its opposite. They never exist without their opposite. Okay. Yin-yang is one thing. You know, it's this dance that yeah. happens. But you need to be aligned between heaven and earth. Okay. So that we oh, deal awesome. yeah. with the, the plane of humanity and yeah. life and the path of life on this plane. Awesome. And, and, and an idea that, I don't know much about this, but it's, I listened to a podcast where Jamie Wheel, who's just written a fantastic book called Recapture the Rapture, um, was talking about healing. And he was talking about Kronos being yes. the god of time. You know, he's the father of the gods, right, in, in, in the Greek mythology. So Kronos time is like from blah, blah, BC to 2021, right? It's this horizontal line. But there's also this idea of kairos time, okay, which is this very present moment, the alignment vertically of this in this present moment. And the beautiful thing about being 100% present in this moment is that you are able to access heaven and earth. But what that does is it allows you access. We were talking about this before the podcast. It allows you access to past events and allows you to rewrite them. Mm. So you can go back and go, I can never be five-year-old Freddie again, yeah. but I can be 54-year-old Freddie. 54? 54-year-old mm. yes. Freddie. And I can hold the memory yeah. that sits inside me of five-year-old Freddie, mm. and I can hold that and I can hear Feel that in this moment so that I don't drag all this yeah. baggage from the past 
into the, not even into the next moment, into this moment yes. in a negative way. Absolutely. So, wow. so we sit at this, at this, it's exactly this cross point. Now, yeah. But wait, it gets so much better. <laughs> you sit at this cross point of Kairos and Kronos. Yeah. Okay. And at that cross point, okay, you think about Christian Gnosticism. Yeah. What's the symbol of Christian Gnosticism? The cross. It's the cross. <laughs> right. And then you think about the sacred heart of Jesus, right? Or Hanuman who opens his chest up and inside his chest is Ram, is God. The heart of that moment, right? And then think about the word Rosicrucian. Who were the Rosicrucians? They were people who were pursuing the idea of the rosy cross, the red rose that sits at the heart of the cross. And the heart of the cross is Kronos time, Kairos time, spiritual alignment in this moment and our natural history as we experience yeah. time. And in the middle of it is the ripped open heart of somebody who's vulnerable and able to live in a way that is born again, for want of another mm. word. Ripping the heart open and having that flowering of the red rose wow. symbolically is a way of being born yeah. again. And that happens at every moment because every moment is a Kairos moment. Exactly. And so that's the prescription yeah. of yoga. Why do you sit so upright? Why do we do all this spinal alignment? Why are you as young as your spine is? Mm. You know what I mean? Why do we do that stuff? Because that's the channel of our chakras, our kundalini, yeah. Aikido happens between heaven and earth. We are reborn <laughs> in the Kairos moment yeah. at the flowering of the rosy cross, yeah. you know. So what we were talking about before we got here was this idea of all the healing, all this trauma work, all of that stuff. It's not an end in itself. Yeah. All it is is recognize what stands on the left side of your, uh, I write in English, so when I look at the page, it's my left side, yeah. right from left to right. So what's on the left side of that cross? And don't let that become baggage as I move on to the right yeah. side of my cross because my vertical alignment is straight. Wow. Awesome. Now, that brings us to your coaching. You are now a qualified coach. Yes. So... It sounds as if, as a coach, you will bring so much to the party. Um, do, do, do you work on a philosophy in coaching? Do you, do you, what? Do you understand my question? I do understand your question. So if I come to you and say, Nick, coach me, what's the first step we go through? I tell and you how much it's going to cost because <laughs> you need to commit. You need to commit to coaching. Okay. Okay. Do you also do, do a commitment of six sessions? Or I do a commitment of six sessions, eight sessions, depending on okay. how it works. At the moment, I'm coaching someone who basically booked me. When I just started, she went, okay, I'm booking you every two weeks till the end of the year. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, and I've got another client that I coach piecemeal, and then I have got... You know, so she pays me per session. Yeah. And then I have some people who I check in with. Okay. 
we have we have a sort of a check-in schedule and so the way my, I'm quite new to the coaching world but the way my coaching seems to go if I have any kind of methodology at all is look at the trauma look at the past let's not get obsessed about it yeah. but let's know what it is so that it yeah. doesn't trip us up understand und understand yeah why you don't are let you are today. Yeah. Yeah. don't and then don't let that undermine those urges those addictions i mean i've spent years in emotional addiction sex addiction drug addiction photographic addiction was an addiction mm. my relationship with photography for a long time was an addictive relation a much healthier relationship yeah. with photography now you know um, so many artists it's an addiction and until you can recognize the addictive elements of it you can't actually prosper yeah. you know because you can't build anything from an addiction so what an addiction does is it get, it's one it's it's one tool to solve all problems i mean you know i don't need to lecture you on addictions but but the point is, is once you've identified that that's all well and good and it gets you to baseline yeah once you've got to baseline what are you going to do what are you here to do and if we are like the metaphor i used earlier trees that are aligned metaphorical trees mm. that are aligned between heaven and earth okay what is our obligation to do what is it our obligation to do in this world if we know that however darwinian you are the universe has been infinitely creative mm. constantly making new iterations of stuff Yeah. constantly creating 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 by accident creating by experiment be creating by divine design whatever you want to call yeah. it what however you frame that and it actually doesn't matter how you frame it our job is to be the latest iteration of a creative universe and whether we are the most intelligent conscious species on earth or not is not the point whether we're the most <laughs> intelligent conscious species in the universe is not the point. The point is we are conscious. Mm. And it doesn't deny anyone else or any other species consciousness. Yeah. But we are conscious and that consciousness is a double-edged sword because it gives us an awareness of our limitations and it gives us this whole ego structure that makes us defensive and whatever. But actually underneath that is this heart of the universe that is wanting expression that wants to be manifesting new shit yeah. new and new beautiful shit there's a great story about Watson and Crick when they won the Nobel prize i don't know whether this is true most of the stories i tell i don't know whether they're actually <laughs> true and there's all the stories that there was a woman who actually came up with all the models for the dna sequence and they won the 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 um the the Nobel, Nobel prize for it um All of that aside, there's a beautiful line. They had three models for what they thought DNA looked like, and nobody had actually seen it. They just modeled it. And they said to them, why did you choose the double helix? And they went, it was the most beautiful. <laughs> and nature is fundamentally beautiful. And so there's that element that we sometimes forget in our process of creation is... 
Easy and hard is not necessarily the question. Happiness is not necessarily the right question. Beauty might be, and this is like straight out of James Hillman, beauty is actually the question. What can I do with my life that is the most beautiful expression of, of, who, of my uniqueness? Yeah. What, how can I express most fully my uniqueness? Because it's our uniqueness that really binds us together. Yeah. Because when I'm as raw and unique and weird as I genuinely am, and I'm not hiding and I'm not pretending and I'm not faking, it allows space for you to be as weird. Or I should say it the other way around because you do this and you've held so much space for me over the two, three years of our relationship. Yeah. How much space you've held and how much honesty and openness and raw vulnerability you've held that's allowed me to go, oh, I don't need to wear this mask with Freddie. And it's safe to do that with Freddie, who I don't really know, and who's sort of polar opposite to me in so many ways. But maybe it's safe to experiment with exposing that more yeah. and more in the world. You know? Yeah. Wow. So... So, so, so I, 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 haven't talked, I haven't talked at all about methodology, but, 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 what, but that's what I want. What I'm what getting I'm, is you take somebody and say, I, and it, let's acknowledge the wound. Yeah. Let's acknowledge the wound from the past, but we're not going to define you in terms of that, that wound. And we're going to, to use the knowledge. And that's and, fucking hard. Yeah. That is very, very yes. hard. And it's taken me mm. years and years and yeah. years and lots and lots of tears. Same, yeah. Heartbreak to yeah. me and to others and pain inflicted yeah. on others. To I have learned that very, very slowly and at a very high yeah. cost to myself and the people around me. Yeah. And, and that reiterates the commitment to coaching. Absolutely. Kind of, kind of let me take your hand on, on what's going to be Probably a long and difficult journey, but it's going to be worth it because what we're going to discover and what we're going to find, what we're going to build is, is the innate beauty inside you and to help you to create more beauty around what, you. What are your, as Steve Chandler says, what are the, what's the dream behind the dream? What's the dream behind that dream? What's mm. the dream behind that dream? You know, and a lot of this therapy culture which i love because i love all this theory i love books it's mm. so nice to read all these great <laughs> theories and i can spout all the stuff from memory and it's wonderful i quote all these clever people but actually what really matters is action yeah. action creates emotion Absolutely. and so taking steps when you're scared mm. taking doing things as experiments this year, my experiment was to be dangerously myself. Mm. So somebody said to me on Facebook the other day, I was like, oh, yes, being brave. I was like, no, no, brave is for bunnies. Dangerous is for wolves. Dangerous <laughs> is for like, I'm on the top of the mountain. It's freezing cold. I don't know where I'm going to eat next. And I am still experimenting. Mm. That's what I want from myself. And that's what I want to encourage in others yeah. is to be dangerously yourself. Wow. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. So, Nick, if somebody wants to... So, do you still do photography? 
I still do photography. Okay. So if somebody wants to, to, to contact you as either a photographer or a coach, where do they where do they find you? So at the moment, my coaching has an identity, which is Outlier Insight. Outlier Insight. Okay. Outlier, yeah, as in the edges of the bell curve, mm-hmm. the weirdos on the yeah. edges of the bell curve, the pirates, the anarchists, um, <laughs> the people outside the system. <laughs> I love it. And... <laughs> And partly that's me and that's partly all of us. Yeah. Um, so Outlier Insight is literally at the moment just an Instagram handle. Awesome. And it has some videos of me cool. talking semi-waffly philosophy nice. or meaningful Making philosophy sense. or deep stuff. Yeah. Um, and my photography Instagram is Photo Traveler okay. with two L's. Um, but you can find me on my website, nickaldridge.net. Cool. So. Awesome. This was phenomenal. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your Thursday morning and coming chat with me and my listeners. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. Just thank you so much. Thank you. And I actually, <laughs> I need to really, really honor you for the work that you do for the person that you are, and for particularly who you've been in my life. Oh, wow. Um, over the last while, we don't know each other. Like, disclaimer alert, we don't know each other that well, and I don't get counseled by Freddie, but I have had such phenomenal <laughs> encouragement and insight from you that's allowed... And You've held such phenomenal space for me in a way that allowed me to separate from a lot of trauma that I'd experienced in my last relationship that Mm. I was putting onto my relationship. And it was my friendship with you that allowed me to go, oh, I don't need to put all of this onto this person. And... So you've <laughs> taught me so much by the way that you hold space, by the way you've encouraged me. Um, yeah, and you. yeah, I'm so honoured to be. I'm so honoured to be here. I'm so honoured to be here. Well, on that most beautiful of notes, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. honestly could have chatted with Nick for another hour or two. Once we get going, there's literally no stop to us. So, with a conscious eye on the clock, I am beyond grateful for Nick spending this morning with us and sharing his insight and wisdom with us. I want him to help many people as a coach and to capture thousands more incredible images in his life. I hold thumbs for him. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor or on Twitter at at Freddy or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an I-E at the end. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.